everybody. Welcome to the show. And before we start out, I'd like to do something a little bit different. I've offered advertisements for physicians to promote their business in exchange for a donation to Physicians for Patient Protection. And I had a really good response on that. So today we're starting our first advertisement. And it's actually a really interesting dating site that is created for physicians. I actually kind of wish that this had been available when I was in my dating days because it's hard to be a physician in the dating world. And you know, we all know at least one physician who is still single, whether it's a colleague or yourself, and you know why. You know, you have a crazy busy schedule, you put your patients first, maybe you're dating people that really just can't understand the demands that our career entail, or all of the above. Today, nearly half of all U.S. relationships are started online, so there's nothing to be ashamed of. And in fact, I met my husband on Match.com some years ago, and I never would have met him if it hadn't have been for that app. But you know, if this app had been available when I was dating, an app to find other physicians, I think I definitely would have been interested in doing that. Um, Because, you know, dating apps, although they're convenient and they help you to meet other people, they do have some drawbacks. Like, you know, you may not want to attract the wrong intentions. You have to sometimes sift through all sorts of fake profiles. So this new app is called Down to Date, Down to Date. It's a dating app that's specifically designed to address the concerns of physicians because it was created by physicians for physicians. Every user is verified as a physician before they're permitted access. And then you might ask yourself, you know, is a dual physician relationship ideal? But actually, many surveys report that nearly half of all married doctors are in fact married to another physician. And this comes as no surprise because who else can know better the toll that this profession exacts on us financially, physically, emotionally better than a fellow colleague? So we've dedicated ourselves to the most noble and sacred calling to serve others. We train together, learn together, laugh together, and cry together. Why not love together? Download Down to Date today. It's available on the web at downtodate.org, or you can download it at the App Store. Oh, and if you're interested in running an ad yourself in return for a donation to PPP, then just shoot me a message through my website, patientsatrisk.com. Now we'll start our show. Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. And today I'm being joined by two special guests. Dr. Phil Schaefer is a retired radiologist. He is a frequent guest of our podcast, and he is a board member with Physicians for Patient Protection. And I also am joined today by Dr. Sharon D'Souza, who is a practicing radiologist. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Almost every field of medicine today involves some type of non-physician practitioner whose role was originally created to help physicians see patients more efficiently. And the specialty of radiology is no exception, with radiologists working with nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and also a special kind of extender called a radiology assistant. So recently, there's been an increased push to use more of these extenders in radiology, and there's some concern that this may have a negative impact on patient care. So I want to start out, Sharon, why don't you start us out by just explaining to our audience, for those who are not radiologists, what is the training of a radiologist? What did you go through? And why is it important that you went through all that training? I completed my 
medical school in 2004. All radiologists need to undergo a year of something general. I chose a general surgery intern year. And after that, I did four years of diagnostic and radiology residency. And after that, I obtained two additional fellowships in breast imaging and in MRI. And since then, I've been in practice over over 10 years. So let me just stop you there. What I heard was, let's say four years of college. And what did you do your undergrad in? I did microbiology and chemistry. Okay. So hardcore (laughs) undergrad degree, four years of that, four years of medical school, Mm -hmm. one year surgery internship, which must've been brutal. I don't know what possessed you to choose that. God bless you. (laughs) And then four years of radiology. That's right. After the one year of internship, four years of radiology, and then another couple of years of extra fellowship. That's right. Holy moly. Bill, tell us about your radiology. What was your your background like? I was undergrad in chemistry, then medical school. At the time, my medical school was three years, but through the whole year. So essentially, we got the whole, whole four years in and three. And then internship, which is rotating internship, but primarily internal medicine. And then at the time, it was three years of radiology residency and then a year of fellowship after that. It's, so uh, radiology is sounds like it's one of the longer and more strenuous residency programs as far as length. And then these extra years that you guys do to get your subspecialization to be able to do specific types of radiology. That's really amazing. So, Phil, tell us, why is it so important to have such a long residency? What are the nuances of the field of radiology? One of the things about radiology is it's kind of, it covers the entire expanse of medicine. We go into it in a, not as, some areas and not as much depth as, say, a cardiologist would in heart, but we're across the entire spectrum of medicine. And it's kind of uh, fun because you get to see all of the ways that different disease processes work through all the, all the systems. For example, you have to know how particular diseases look on x-rays, and on ultrasound, then nuclear medicine studies, then CT exams and MR exams. And you have to also know which exam is better for particular aspects of a certain disease. Certain uh, diseases, uh, metastases don't show up very well uh, in a cancer with a CT scan, but may be very obvious with a nuclear medicine scan or an MR scan. And beyond that, MR is very interesting because if you tune the uh, machine slightly wrong, you can erase lesions and make them not visible at all. And what you're doing is really a matter of life and death often, or at least making the correct diagnosis to figure out what's wrong with patients. So what you're doing is so critically important in the care of patients. You know, almost every disease process nowadays, there's some type of radiologic evaluation. Right. And one of my referring physicians told me once when we, we also do PET imaging, which is positron emission tomography, used primarily to look for cancers. And as he said, he said, you know, my entire plan is based on the result of the PET scan. That has to be right. And they can be very difficult to read because one of the things you learn in radiology residency is uh, how many things can fool you, how many things look like disease that are not really disease. And if you're not aware of these 
false positives, you can send someone off to a surgery that they don't need. You know, I, as a family doctor, I appreciate what radiologists do so very much. And of course, like every physician in training, we spend some time learning some basics of radiology and some practicing physicians even will do their own evaluation of basic x-rays and then of course, usually have a radiologist overread it. And uh, I always found even just chest x-ray reads to be really challenging and that Often I would look at the x-ray and I would think I would see something. And I remember in the middle of the night as uh, being on call, especially the pediatric chest x-rays, I would go, oh, I I think there might be a pneumonia. Uh, And so I'd go and find the radiologist in his little dark corner. And I would say, could you take a look? And he'll just look at it for two seconds and go, it's normal. (laughs) And, And, you know, it seemed like I would always get it wrong, especially with pediatrics. And I just think it, there's a lot of hubris with someone just assuming that with minimal training, even something like what you, we would consider basic, a chest x-ray, that you could le- learn how to read that in just a, such a small amount of time. Am, am I wrong? You're absolutely right. It's it's uh, this huge misconception that that a chest x-ray is so easy. And, and it's it, I think it's because... Um, after this decade of training and after seeing thousands and thousands of chest x-rays and seeing them when you're on call and in the hot seat and covering the ER and trauma and all of that, we, we tend to make it look easy because we have this vast experience, this depth of knowledge to, to fall back on. So now we have these radiology assistants. And as I understand it, this is sort of like a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. This is a person that is meant to help because in radiology, you're using NPs and PAs, but this is a person that's specifically trained to just do radiology. Can you tell us, Sharon, a little bit more about radiology assistants? How long have they been around and how are they trained? Sure, sure. So the concept of the radiology assistant was originally born through a collaboration with Weber State University and the the U.S. Department of Defense in the early 90s, 1990s. And then it, it was really put forth as a way to address a shortage of radiologists in the military. Then about 10 years later, in 2003, 2004, the American College of Radiology, the Council, and the ASRT, um, the American Society of Radiologic Technologists, they got together, had um, had several conversations and meetings about this and recognized the RRA under certain stipulations that there was an absolute ban on image interpretation, no prelim, final reads, that the terminology was specifically chosen, radiology assistant, that they only work with or for a radiologist and no independent practice. So back in 2003, the list of what a radi- radiology assistant would cover was maybe a page or so long. In the subsequent years, that has been gradually expanded. It's a multi-page document. In 2019, prior to COVID, their scope of practice was expanded to do some procedures under direct supervision rather than personal supervision. They then, I believe they are expanding their education to include a master's degree let me just take you back for just one second. So I'm definitely hearing the slippery slope, which we're going to definitely get into. But first of all, when the radiology assistant first came about, and I believe they had to have a bachelor's degree, and then they did some kind of a preceptorship and got certified through their organization. Okay. When they first came out, 
What were they doing to help radiologists, like in the very beginning? Varied a lot from practice to practice. I think they, depending on the practice, they were they were a true assistant, helping the radiologist whoever needed, um, you know, gathering data, helping assimilate that kind of information, helping with fluoroscopic studies. In my personal experience, when I was in training, we had a radiology assistant who was in training herself. So she would shadow us, really. She would come and hang out for a couple hours when we were on call and watch the readout. She would assist with fluoro. In my current practice, we have two RAs and they've they've been with our practice for gosh, maybe a decade or more. They're very well respected. They're they're highly valued. They they do their job very well. And from what I understand, I, I haven't had uh, just because of the nature of what I do in my areas of specialty, I haven't had a lot of direct personal contact with them. From But from what I understand, they do a decent amount of uh, fluoro studies for us. I mean, what it sounds like to me is like an extra pair of hands uh, yeah. to do these studies, maybe somebody that can help you track down. Maybe you need old films from some other place. Maybe you need someone to get uh, in touch with a, a surgeon to get them on the phone for you, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Whereas what it's leaning towards now is actually having them sort of become radiologist light, where supposedly they're going to be reading films. Now, Phil, have you ever worked with a radiology assistant in your practice? Actually, no, I never did. And I was rather uncomfortable when we just described um, or when it was suggested we might, because like for fluoro studies, when you're in there watching the barium move or something like that, it can be gone in a flash and you didn't see it. And having someone describe that to you, you're always going, well, did he see it? So we, I was always opposed to us having those. And, and so we did not really use those. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because, you know, the, all these parallels, you think about how originally the idea with having physician extenders was sort of like this, just to help make it easier for a physician to practice medicine. But now, and the argument is always, well, medicine has gotten more complicated. So we need the physician to do the more complicated and let the assistants do the less complicated. But even the least complicated thing in radiology, which to me, I'm guessing is a chest x-ray is not uncomplicated. It's very complicated. It takes a long time to learn how to do that correctly, I would imagine. And so now the idea is to take these radiology assistants and get them to read those types of films with theoretically the radiologist is going to overread them. But then I ask myself, how is that actually saving any time if you guys still have to overread the film? Does that actually help anybody? I don't think it does. And I, I need to point out something. When the um, RA was conceived of as a profession, there was an agreement between the ACR and the ASRT, the American Society of Radiology Technologists, that radiology technician technologists would never, or the RAs would never actually interpret films. And that is being breached now. And that is a serious issue. We've got examples and I will say this too, MPs and PAs have started going into interpretation. It's an entirely inappropriate thing. They don't know what they're doing, but they do it anyway. Some of these are in, in practices that are not run by radiologists, such as one that I heard of as physical medicine. And the uh, woman who worked there said that she had been told she had to read the MR scans. And she said she learned it in a week or two. Give me a break. She was comparing what she thought with the radiologist. This is just. There's so much hubris. I mean, you guys had to do 
four, four years of residency on top of everything, plus fellowship training. That's crazy. So let's talk about how radiology extenders are being used. And it's so interesting because you mentioned like a private practice setting, but where we're really seeing a lot of this is in academia. And in fact, I recently listened to the audio of a presentation that was a pro-con, the use of radiology extenders. And the physician who was advocating for pro or more use uh, was Dr. Jaw, and he is, uh, I guess, a faculty member at University of Pennsylvania, I believe. Yes. And he was strongly advocating for the use of these radiology assistants Bill, can you talk a little bit about some of his points of why he thought radiology assistance should be used more? Well, he spoke for a half an hour. I'm certainly not going to go through all of it. A lot of his points, I thought, were off topic. But it kind of boiled down to, wow, we have so much volume and we can't keep up and we really need help. And I don't have a whole lot of sympathy with that. I think that what's happening here is that they get busy, so they try to farm out some of it to relatively unqualified people to to manage the volume. But the patients are charged the same as if they had had an expert physician actually reading the study. So my feeling is the ethical way to do this is if you don't want to read the studies, if you're too busy, uh, then don't do it and don't charge people for it. There was one interesting thing in the paper they wrote that spoke to this. They talked about how they had become overwhelmed because they'd taken over some practices outside of of uh, Philadelphia, and because of that, their volume had gone up. And you know, the obvious point is there were radiologists reading those studies before who were in those hospitals, and they got fired. And what happened was the hospital, uh, University of Pennsylvania Hospital, took over these practices, but did not increase the number of people reading them and actually decrease them. So you've you've got a, a money machine going on here, where you just keep uh, adding on studies and telling the radiologists who are there you got to read more now. And yeah, you get burned out, but it's it's the fault of the institution. And it needs to be pointed out that the institution has a strong financial interest in this because especially in academics, the main campus has a budget and the clinical faculties are supposed to produce a certain amount of profit for the uh, central campus. And if they don't, there's a problem. So it is truly a money-driven situation. And the more they can do with the fewer faculty, the more profit goes back to the main campus. It's so interesting because when I listened to his argument, he almost made it sound like it's people other than radiologists that are driving all of this volume saying, well, you know, everybody gets imaged for every single thing. And a lot of what we're doing is just saying the endotracheal tube is two centimeters above the carina. The NG tube is in proper place. And, you know, he's acting like that is why they're so busy because everybody's like kind of over ordering x-rays. And then he also says that, you know, doing an, a chest x-ray really doesn't even make any sense which, because most of what you need to read uh, looking at lungs is on a chest CT scan. So let's have these radiology assistants read the chest x-rays while the, the radiologists read the CAT scans. Sharon, I mean, what do you think about those points? 
Well, I don't think a chest x-ray is easy. I don't think anything that that we do is easy. It's a minefield. There's always something that you have to keep your eye out for. There's always something incidental that you pick up. We're not just we're not just looking for an ET tube. We're looking for the the myriad of other things that are just in the back of your mind that you've seen uh, throughout our years of, of training that that you can't teach in a in a truncated education. I do agree. I feel I think all of us radiologists have have are feeling that volumes have increased. If you truly look at utilization and numbers of studies ordered, they have increased. And actually the number of images that we're looking at have increased. Like a lower extremity runoff is like 5,000 images. <laughs> you know, It's a lot of information that we are interpreting. And we're, we are very cognizant of the fact that we're responsible for everything on that image. We look pretty darn closely. And when we look at this overutilization, partly it is in incorrect ordering of studies by by non-physicians. We're seeing that, you know, just a few weeks ago, I, I had to make a call and say, why, why did you order this study? This person had a, had a CT just last week. Oh, it was for an, an anomalous Venus something or other. And it was basically a normal finding that a radiologist put in the report and had to call and it took more time out of my day <laughs> to deal with that. But you know, Whereas if you had just read the report or done it, you could have gotten I, paid and I would have irradiated the patient and got another, it, it was just completely unnecessary. But his solution to having too many studies ordered by people who are not qualified to order them is not to hire more people who aren't qualified to read them. It just, it's, that's not the, it's the opposite of high value care. It just makes no real sense. Yeah. I mean, as he was talking, I was thinking to myself, well, one option would be to create a policy. You know, he said, you know, people will order x-rays just to see if the NG tube, nasogastric tube is in the right position. And, you know, we never had to do that before. You can tell if it's in the right position generally clinically. So I was thinking, well, why not create a policy where you say these are the circumstances in which we will do it or or if you think that if a doctor orders a chest X-ray and you think a CAT scan is going to be better, then create a policy so that that information is shared with, I mean, he's in an academic center. So I think he's talking a lot about hospitalized patients, but it seems like it might be more efficient to actually just create work with your teams in the hospital and create a policy so that the radiologist, I mean, you guys aren't there just to do our bidding as a non-radiologist, like do this test, do that test. We're supposed to be working together to do the right thing for the patient. So it seems like that would be the right answer. Yes, it would seem that way, but I need to point one thing out. The institutions have no incentive to decrease imaging, none. Every study that's done is a profit. With a few exceptions, there are a few facilities like Kaiser where patients pay up front and all money is taken out, but in the fee-for-service realm, which is almost all of uh, medicine right now, if there's more studies done, that makes more profit. Absolutely. The, the other thing that struck me when I was listening to Dr. Jaw talk is sort of this cognitive dissonance because he talked about the simplicity of some of the things that his team is doing. And he said, he kept saying this mantra, Blood, pus, water, better, worse, ET tube, two centimeters above the crina. You know, he's kind of like rattling it off. Like, that's all they have to do. I mean, number one, as Sharon pointed out, that ain't easy. But then after he says blah, 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 and rattles us off, then he, someone asked, well, 
What about radio, radiology assistants then wanting to re- read more advanced films? And he said, oh, that's not possible because radiology is extremely <laughs> complex and that it is not scalable. And of course, I thought, wow, what a what an interesting contrast in saying, oh, it's so simple, but it's way too hard. I mean, talk about your thoughts on that. Well, he's wrong. How's that? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, I mean... The experience with uh, anesthesia and ER tells you uh, that that's not true. I mean, CRNAs started out, and the idea was that they would be helpers to uh, anesthesiologists, and they're taking over the field. I have to add one more thing. He was going on about how simple the portable chests are, and he put pneumothorax in there. And for lay people in the in the audience, a pneumothorax is air between the lung and the chest wall, and I got to tell you, that is not easy to see in in a lot of cases. And the uh, findings can be very subtle, particularly when the people are lying flat on their back as they are in the ICU and all the air goes to the front of the chest. So all you may see is is, a finding that's very subtle, such as the heart border is a little too sharp. And you go, whoa, that's a little weird. And that can hide a very significant pneumothorax. So he was being very cavalier about something that is not easy. And one of the, someone who was in that facility, I had a discussion with, and they pointed out they were appalled because they said, these are our sickest patients, including heart transplants and lung transplants. And they don't have physicians looking primarily at their chest films. Yeah, one of the things that Dr. Jaw said, he kind of used this, what I thought was a bit of a straw man argument where he said, well, how would you feel if your mother was in a, in the hospital and there were not enough radiologists to read their film, her films, because all the radiologists are overworked and burned out? And of course, the argument is, well, how would you feel if, if your mom's x-rays are being read by someone with minimal training and skill and something gets missed? And Sharon, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I wouldn't want that either. I, I, you, you always want that that gold standard. Um, you want the imaging expert to be at that at that workstation and reading those films. And then there's also the transparency issue. What about that? How are patients going to know who's reading their X-rays? They don't, and they have no choice. It's imposed upon them. So it was kind of interesting, Doctor. I don't want to make this all about Doctor Jaw, but he, since he was the pro voice, he talked about the myths of radiology extenders, and he said lots and lots of things. But one of the things that he said is that it's a myth that having these radiology assistants will have a negative impact on radiologists in training residents. And uh, Sharon, have you heard about any residents or anyone in training having concerns about their education being diluted by these assistants? I have. I have heard from several residents in training. Basically, every procedure, every imaging study taken by radiology assistant or um, NP or PA, that's basically a lost opportunity for our residents in training. And, you know, I... In, throughout my career, I've basically been, I've, though I am specialized, I have these fellowships, I have functioned as a general radiologist. I'm, I'm a radiologist that I can be put in a hospital at solo and cover everything that they have. What I'm hearing from residents in training is when they are getting towards the end of their, their training, they're not feeling comfortable 
enough to do that. They don't have the numbers that I had. The other myths that Dr. Jaw said was that radiologists have a fear of, he said it something like existential fear of being replaced and that it's an ego issue and that there's nothing to fear and that you shouldn't, why are you so worried? And radiologists were worried about teleradiology and look how that turned out fine. So what do you think about that attitude that he has of that? It's really an ego issue on the, on the end of radiologists. I don't, I don't think it's a fear issue. And I, I, I don't think it's an ego issue. I think it's looking around at the state of medicine at an, at our colleagues in, in other specialties, what they have gone through. Every mid-level provider that's ever been created has eventually wanted to expand their scope of practice to the point of competing with the very entities that created them in the first place. That's happened in every specialty that we've we've seen them. And I think it's almost more of an ego to assume that it will not happen in radiology. What makes us think that we're different? It's it's the very definition of insanity, of repeating the, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We're seeing some pretty alarming similarities with what's going on with radiology assistants versus NPs and PAs. And again, I, I truly value our radiology assistants. I think they do great work and I, I, I love having them, but we can't allow, we can't predict what's going to happen in 10 years. We, though individual RAs, I, I believe them when they, when they speak on our Engage forums and they say that they, they value the radiologist, they don't want to be independent. I, I, I believe that, that that's truly what they want, but we cannot speak to the RA for 10, in 10 years or what their societies will push or in 10 years when there's a leadership turnover in their societies. But we have seen what's happened with NPs and PAs. And just going by history alone, I don't know why people think radiology would be any different. Yeah, I mean, I think about the interview we did with Dr. Robert McNamara back in 1994, He was calling out academia saying, you know, you guys need to do something about these issues that are happening. And it was the same exact response that we're hearing from radiology leaders now, which is, oh, this is just a myth. This will never happen. So I think if you do look at other specialties, you're right. I don't see how the same thing wouldn't just happen again. And if you look at the history, for example, nurse practitioner profession was established in 1965. And they were supposed to just work and extend. And then in 24 years, they became eligible for direct reimbursement. Physician assistants were established in 1965. Same thing. We're supposed to not going to bill. They were part of the team. And then in 21 years, they became eligible for direct payment. And so now the radiology assistant uh, profession was started in 1994. They are not currently reimbursed through the Medicare system, but beginning this year, there were organizations lobbying for radiology assistants to be paid directly. So just like NPs, just like PAs. And then, of course, we know after the direct payment comes, we now would like to do this. Now we would like to be independent. So it's hard not to see that slippery slope coming for radiology because it's following the exact same path. What happens there is if the uh, radiology assistants are paid directly. That means that the uh, administration can hire them and replace radiologists because they're no longer responsible to the radiologist. And 
what we have observed with nurse practitioners and PAs is that there is an enthusiasm in administrative circles for hiring these people, but there is they don't understand or they don't care, perhaps, about the loss of quality, and they don't look at that closely. One of the real differences in radiology is we have on the horizon is artificial intelligence as an interpreter of x-ray films. And I've been watching this fairly closely for the last 10 years, and there are some systems that have been touted as being as good as radiologists. You read the papers closely, and they're horrible. They, they're, they're awful. But still, the media picks it up, and they promote it as as good as radiologists. They are not at all. That sounds very familiar, and we are going to get into that in part two because we have a few more things that we need to unpack when it comes to studies and when it comes to radiology assistance. So I hope you'll join us for part two. And of course, if you would like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. And if you're a physician, please join our organization, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can find us at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much. And we'll see you on part two. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're looking for love, then why not check out the dating app Down to Date, downtodate.org or Down to Date at the App Store. Find other physicians that are looking for love. Mm-hmm.